A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode, which is part two on the Jewish history of Boston, has been generously sponsored by MyJewishLineage.com. My Jewish Lineage's team is made up of professional genealogists and family history experts, who have extensive research and genealogical experience specializing in Jewish genealogy. Watch your family story come alive as their team unravels family enigmas, overcomes brick walls, and helps discover more about who you are and where you come from. You enjoy the story while the My Jewish Lineage team does the work for you. In special for the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites, because I'm sure there's many listeners out there who would love to uh, utilize the services of the Jewish genealogy of, uh, of myjewishlineage.com. So if you mention that you heard this on Jewish History Soundbites, you can get a 10% discount, 10% off your first research project of two hours or more. So go straight to myjewishlineage.com. I can personally vouch for my Jewish lineage um, they're professional, great job. They're easy to work with. The thing is, I get requests all the time to help uh, research uh, families and, and genealogy, stuff like that. And I'm not a genealogist. Um, so I generally refer uh, genealogy stuff to my Jewish lineage. And and the, the, you know, the color clients are never disappointed. So if you have any genealogy stuff, you definitely want to go to myjewishlineage.com. I'll post the link in the description as well. In in the Great American Jewish Cities series, one of the more popular uh, cities was Boston. We did Boston Part 1, and we covered a lot of the early times, a lot of the early colorful rabbinic personalities who uh, graced the Jewish community in Boston with their presence. Um Shizvon Margolius, Ramaz, Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedman, um, Rav Wolf Margolis, so we spoke a little bit about um, the Boston Arabo. We definitely want to do that in a separate uh, episode, the Boston Hasidic Dynasty. And uh, mentioned a few other things briefly. I want to get back to Boston and now and, and elaborate on a few of the uh, um, um, uh, topics we touched on then and, of course, delve into it some more. I definitely want to, at the outset, thank... Boston native Mrs. Aviva Yasni for sharing so many of her memories and information and background. She was very gracious with her time and 
looks very knowledgeable um, and uh, for, for sharing with those sources. If we go um, start a little bit at the outset, uh, Boston is one of the most historic of American cities altogether in the general sense. And uh, there, was, there was not an organized Jewish community during the colonial era or even the early uh, uh, period of American history in the um, 18th and early 19th centuries. There were isolated Sephardic Jews, people who had descended from converso families. Um, there was, in, in fact, a, a, an American patriot, a fellow by the name of Moses Michael Hayes, who was, uh, who was a converso, who was an early Sephardic Jew in Boston. He actually was close friends with Paul Revere, and he was the founder of the Boston Masonic Lodge, which, which, was, which was quite popular then. And um, so, he, so there were individuals like that, um, but, um, but, the, uh, but the community is only established later. Boston, interestingly enough, is also one of the early, early place of American Zionism. There was a British Jew named Jacob de Haas, who later on moved to the United States and settles in Boston. He's the one who influenced Louis Brandeis um, of Harvard, to um, to embrace Zionism and Brandeis, of course, becomes the first Jew on the Supreme Court and also the leader of American Zionism. So in the early 1900s, uh, Jacob de Haas lays the foundations for the American Zionist movement, um, and he, he's also the editor. There's a you know a very famous Boston Jewish newspaper, which only. I think closed down recently. It was one of the longest, I think per perhaps the longest uh, going, uh, being published Jewish American newspaper in the entire United States, the Jewish Advocate. So Jacob de Haas was a, a, an editor of the Advocate for a decade in the early 1900s. Um, and, and then, of course, Brandeis's prestige added uh, influence to American Zionism. By the time World War II came around, more than 90% of Boston Jewry and New England Jewry, rather, uh, supported Zionism, which was a record unmatched anywhere in the United States. Um, there's actually another interesting story before we jump to the modern modern times, or, or really modern times. There was another fellow named Judah Monis, Monis, who, who was a... a the, a, a first Jewish professor at Harvard. In order to become a professor at Harvard, he had. To, this is a colonial era. This is the before before the before independence in the 18th century. Um, he had to convert. He converts to Christianity, and uh, so officially he wasn't Jewish, but he was a professor of Hebrew, and he uh, he's taught Hebrew grammar. Uh, and there was you know in in the colonial times there was this movement among the divinity schools, um, which Harvard and Yale were at the time, to, to to have their students study Hebrew, study the Bible in its original language, in its original text. So there, many of them studied the Hebrew language. So this Judah Monas was a Jew in Harvard who converted to Christianity, who was a, 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 a teacher of Hebrew. And he wrote books in, on Hebrew and Hebrew grammar and Hebrew language. Also quite an interesting fellow. But if we go to the established of the commu Jewish community, we have to move to the mid-19th century. The first congregation which is established is Ave Shalom, which is formally organized in 1843, and it was a Polish-Jewish shul, 
which is quite rare for the United States at the time. In mid-19th century, this is before the Great Immigration, most of the Jews living in the United States were either Sephardic Jews descending from Converso families or the German Jewish immigration, which was at its peak in the 1840s. And here we have a Polish, the first shul in Boston is Minhag Poilin. Um, and, they, and, and then a year later, the Boston City Council permits them to purchase land for a Jewish cemetery. And in 1852, they build a synagogue. Uh, and then they, and then a, a couple of years later, a, a faction secedes from the shul and and starts a German, a, a German shul, eventually a German temple called Temple Israel. And then there's later on a third synagogue. This is all in the 1850s. So Boston Jewry is was quite small at this time and more Polish than German, which was very different than most American Jewish communities at the time. In 1875, the Jewish population was still only about 3,000, so it's a quite a small and late into the game. But by 1900, which is only two, a couple of decades later, so then they're ready. The immigration is coming from Eastern Europe, and Boston is a harbor on the uh, eastern uh, seaboard. So it already had 40,000 Jews, and Eastern European Jews dominated the Jewish community by World War One. By the time World War One breaks out, there's 90,000 Jews living in Boston, and almost all of them are recent immigrants or their children. So they, the uh, with the uh, what becomes the most prominent Jewish community is the West End of Boston, and subsequently the Jewish community spreads to Roxbury, Dorchester, and later Mattapan, and Brookline, Newton, and uh, and uh, and then also uh, on the outskirts of Boston, Chelsea, Malden, and uh, the late 19th and 20th century, uh, the city of Boston was divided between the Protestant wasps who controlled the social and cultural and financial institutions of the city, and the Catholic Irish who dominated its politics. Think about the Kennedy family. And uh, this did not make it easy for the largely immigrant Jewish group to find their place there. And there was anti-Jewish violence during the Depression. World War II, the city was known as one of the most anti-Semitic in the United States. The post-war era got a little better. Catholic-Jewish relations improved. Jews moved to the suburbs, but there was still plenty of anti-Semitism from the Irish, uh, even post-war, you know, the uh, Jews, Jews sometimes could even get cursed uh, walking down the street. So it was uh, a, a, an interesting situation. Um, in the beginning of the 20th century, like many of the Jewish immigrant uh, communities, like in New York City and other places, there was a lot of workers, uh, proletarians, uh, what we would call them, factory socialist uh, elements, especially in the garment industry. But by post-war, that changed, just like in New York. And by 1969, 71% uh, of Boston Jewish families were in white-collar occupations. Uh, but at that time, also, it was interesting, in the 1960s, the largest group of Jews in Boston were transient students, um, which also changed. But still, it, uh, it could, the Boston Jewish community has the highest proportion of Jewish academics and students in the entire United States, and that's obviously because of all the prominent universities in Boston, Harvard and, and, uh, and uh, Brandeis and MIT and LaSalle and Boston University and, and so on. Uh, there was all kinds of charitable institutions that start in the 1800s. The United Hebrew Benevolent Association is in 1864, and then there's all kinds of other ones, the Hebrew Ladies Sewing Society, the Hebrew Industrial School, the Free Burial Association, 
and so on, and there's many more. By 1895, the the Boston Jewish community creates the Federation of Jewish Charities of Boston, which was the first Jewish federation in the United States, and later known as, as the Association of Jewish Philanthropies and uh, the Combined Jewish Philanthropies. So that's that they are pioneers in the Jewish uh, uh, charity in, in American Jewish communities. Just to show uh, an example of the evolution of one uh, aspect of the community as demographics change and neighborhoods change. I'll take one example from one of the old shuls on the West End, the Vilna Shul. Good name also. Uh, many Jews settled in the crowded, undesirable tenement neighborhoods in the West End where there was cheaper housing, and the Jews formed Landsmannschaften, like in other immigrant communities and urban centers, which was, of course, organizations of of immigrants who came from the same area or town in Europe. And around the tur- at the turn of the century, there were about 40 synagogues in the area, and the Vilna Shul is, still remains. It's still, the building is still there, and it's the only building on the West End, uh, from only synagogue building on the West End that still exists. Uh, they were, it was founded, obviously, by a group of Jewish immigrants from Vilna, and they formed their Landsmannschaft in 1888 in, in the neighborhood of Beacon Hill in the, in the west end of Boston. And they had, first they started gathering as a minion in, in, the, in one of the homes, um, and they called themselves Anshe Vilner, the people of Vilna. And then they uh, build a, 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 a synagogue, and they, they actually purchase it from a church, which is which is ironic because a lot of the synagogues of the West End eventually became, as in many other places, were sold to churches. So here they originally buy it from a church, um, and they uh, they um, so they uh, and they turn it into a synagogue. And they, they 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 what happens is they they rebuild it and all and and of course, and the congregants of the shul, these Vilna immigrants, they paint the walls and the ceiling of their new synagogue with decorative murals which was a long-standing tradition in Eastern Europe. In many of the shuls that I bring groups to in Eastern Europe, they have these beautiful murals on the walls. Over, you know, And they have all these different uh, colors and everything. And uh, eventually it was covered with other paint, but recently small remnants of, of these murals have been conserved, con- conserved by art conservation experts. And uh, they are some of the only remaining examples of pre-war Jewish mural art in the United States. So they're there for 65 years, but by the 1950s, uh, the West End was was you know moved moved out, and and uh, and 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 Vilna the Vilna Shul was one of the only remaining synagogues in the area. The last time a Rosh Hashanah davening was on the, was in this shul was in 1985, and then it remained abandoned. Today, there's some sort of cultural center there. So that's that's the uh, how one place evolves in the West End as the community changes. And they move to Roxbury and then Dorchester and then other parts of, of Boston. One of the interesting uh, individuals who came over to Boston at, at around the time of World War II was Rabbi Moses Kohn, Rabbi Moshe Kohn, who was born in Hamburg in Germany. And he went to study in the Mir Yeshiva in Poland. And then when the Yeshiva flees to Vilna, so he uh, he eventually makes it to, to Boston from Kobe, Japan. He did not go to Shanghai with the rest of the yeshiva, but he um, assisted with the rescue. He got the visas for the German uh, students of the Mir Yeshiva. The Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir, Blaise Finkel, had given him that task. 
Um, but he made it to Boston. He had a cousin in Boston who signed his affidavit. And he initially starts to work for Sam Feuerstein in his uh, factory, who was one of the most prominent Boston Jewish citizens at the time. Um, at that time, Rev Solveitchik's uh, Rav Solveitchik's Maimonides school was still an afternoon school, and he taught there. Uh, and he was hired to teach there, this Rabbi Kohn, and he ends up being becoming the principal. Rav Solveitchik hires him to be the principal. And, uh, and, he, and Rav Solveitchik actually once remarked to him, he said, you do all the work, and I get all the credit. I think he was crediting him with doing all the work to uh, you know, be the, the day-to-day principal of the school, which was, it was quite an, an amazing school, the Maimonides School. It was a Hebrew day school, one of the first in the United States outside of New York City. And, um, uh, and there was not many religious Jews who were the initial uh, students at the school. The first, there was a few, but most of the student body was not Shabbos observant. And Rav Soloveitchik convinced the people to send their children to the school. Um, and Rabbi Kohn's wife, Mrs. Devorah Applegrad Kohn, uh, saw that, that the students were not coming to shul on Shabbos. Their fathers were at work. So she decided she's going to go ahead and teach Hebrew and to teach how to pray to the mothers of the students. So she had these classes at night where she taught Hebrew and davening to the mothers of the student body. And this way they would come to shul and they would bring their sons along while the fathers went to work. And that's what she did. Um, she was one of the last students of Sarah Schneer in the Krakow Seminary of Beis Yaakov. So she was an educator herself. And she would sometimes even bring a doll to these these study sessions and bend the knees of the doll and the head to show and teach the women how to pray, how to, you know, uh, uh, do the prayers of how to, when, when to bow down. And this strategy works. Slowly the community becomes more observant. Uh, many families became religious through her activities. Uh, Rav Solveitchik set the standards of the Maimonides school and it was Rabbi Kohn's job to carry them out. It was a co-ed school uh, and... Um, and the and 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 this 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 was this day school developed. Um, the school was open on Cholamayd Sukkis, and Rav Solveitchik uh, insisted on that. Why? Because which which day school is open on Cholamayd Sukkis? So he wanted that the children would be able to get to eat in a sukkah. Most of them did not have a sukkah at home, and this way they would have an opportunity to eat in a sukkah. So Jewish studies classes were actually in Hebrew, not the Gemara classes, but the Navi. There was a Hebrew language class, and they, lear- they learned Hebrew in Ivrit, in, in Israeli Hebrew. So many of the graduates of the school knew how to speak the Hebrew language as well. Eventually, um, Lubavitch came to Boston later on. They opened their own school, Rabbi Cement, Rabbi Castell. And they, they, had, they, they were the first school that had separate classes in, in Boston. Um, what's interesting is that Rav Soloveitchik was the rabbi of the Boston Jewish community, but he was not a, a leader by nature. His wife, Tanya, was a very strong woman. She was uh, more of a, an outgoing leadership personality. Rav Soloveitchik, in, in Boston at least, he was more quiet, he was reserved, he was very friendly, liked people, people loved him. Um, but people followed him because, of his, uh, because he was, he was a, a friendly person, not a dynamic leader. Um, people, the uh, um, he he delivered a a class on Maitzei Shabbos on on Gemara and on the Parsha of that week at Maimonides. Many people uh, became uh, followers of his through through that. Um, 
And, uh, and besi- aside from Maimonides, there was, of course, the Tolna Rebbe, the Boston Rebbe, Labavitch, there was the Chai Adam Shul, and I'm going to speak about the, proceed to speak about some of these uh, places as well. You know, they had the Young Israel, had, uh, he had a couple of other Orthodox shuls at the time. What was one of the distinctive features of Boston was that it was a city of, of a hospitable city. Hachnasas Archim, they were very welcoming to guests, both because of the hospitals in the city, uh, where many Jews came from all over the world to take make use of the of the facilities of the of the hospitals and and the ones who were prominent in that regard were of course the Boston Rebbe Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz and his Rofa organization and the Feuerstein family who were great uh, uh, hosts of, of 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 these people and also because of the academic scene because of all the universities and these Jewish university students all over so it became this hospitable Jewish community. And the shuls were all, that was the idea. You know, students would show up in the shuls, different, different shuls on Friday night, and, and, and they would get invited. Everyone would, get, everyone would take a few students home. And the children were brought up like that. The children were raised to seek out strangers in the shul and to ensure that they had a place. That was the mentality of the Boston Jewish community, which is an incredible thing. And therefore, in the Boston Jewish community, they, they didn't classify Jews based on affiliation, education, or background, because it was this hospitable atmosphere and every Jew was treasured. So um, the, I mentioned the Feuerstein family. So you had Samuel... Um, Feuerstein, who was the patriarch, he was involved with Maimonides, and um, he uh, he he uh, he had the Molden Mills. They developed this polar fleece uh, fabric. In fact, um, uh, his his um, his son uh, Aaron Feuerstein. There's a famous story with him. Was um, when the the uh, the factory burned down shortly before Christmas uh, one year. So he paid all the non-Jewish workers a full salary um, for several months until the factory was rebuilt. The whole world was talking about another son, more, more, even more famous, Mo Feuerstein of Brookline. Um, he um, he's, became a great philanthropist in local Maimonides, Young Israel, and many other endeavors and projects. And also, like I said, in a hospitable sense. So the... If your students were involved in all the people who came to the hospital nearby, they would host them. His son Henry, uh, they would come from all over the world. He and his wife uh, would would host them and assist those um, those uh, guests in in Boston. Uh, the the um, they were they were they were involved in many institutions all over the United States and during the Vadhat Sala during the the. Uh, during the war, um, and, and during Tyra Maser, with Rabshaga Fievel Mendelovich, and uh, with many, with the OU, uh, with many other endeavors. So they were a prominent uh, um, philanthropic family. There's another, like I mentioned, another shul was the Tolna Rebbe, um, and he uh, he had, it was this you know, old, old school, his name was Rabbi Mishulam Zushetversky, and um, his, uh, he, 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 it was like an old little shtibel. And uh, you see, the, 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 you know, his ancestor, Reb David, Reb David of Tolna, was one of the uh, most, you know, had one of the largest courts in Ukraine. You know, they come to the United States in Boston in the early 1900s, 
and his wife had to struggle to get a minion together. And that was trying to establish a Hasidic community in the United States wasn't always uh, the easiest endeavor. Um, he would, uh, his son, of course, was, uh, was Dr. Isidor Tversky, the son-in-law of Rav Salvechik and a professor at Harvard. But the old Rebbe was this uh, old-fashioned Hasidic Rebbe. He used to distribute a Shmek Tabak Friday night to anyone who came to his, to his shul. Again, they had to struggle to make a minion. Um, but that was that was a shtibel. That was a, that was tolna. Eventually, when uh, when he passed away, and, and uh, Rabbi Doctor Yitzchak Isidor Twersky moved it from Roxbury to Brooklyn. He built a new shul. He had all his followers, uh, students from Harvard, who became part of the uh, tolna Hasidic community, and then they gave it, I guess, breathed a new life into it. Um, then, of course, you had Rabbi Yitzchak Harovitz, the Boston Rebbe, and um, and um, which. Which of course we'll have, a, we'll have to have a, his own episode one day. But he was a his impact in the Boston Jewish community was that his amazing people person, uh, where he was good with people, talked to people, understanding them. Um, you know, he was not involved directly with many of the institutions in Boston. He had his own shul and he had his rofe, the uh, connections to doctors and referrals, and a building where he people where he hosted people. He had a relationship with Rav Solveitchik, but he. He had an impact on people. That was the that was the primary influence that he had. Um, another rabbi there was in the Chai Adam Shul. The Chai Adam Shul is another post-war shul, and incredibly enough, the the rabbi of it was another Margolis. It seems like uh, none of them were related to each other, as far as I know. But uh, they um, another Margolis, Reb Shleima Margolis, who was a Navardic, a student of Navardic in Europe and arrives in the United States, and it was a very religious shul. He was a very respected individual. He and his wife, he delivered many classes, very quiet, outreach work, very refined individual. He and his wife uh, were able to impact many of the people in the community. And in fact, when he uh, he had some inheritance money that he once received, he did not keep anything for himself, and he used it to uh, help establish the first uh, high school, religious high school in Boston, the Masifta in, in Boston, with uh, Reb Leib Hyman, um, which was kind of like a Lakewood branch. Um, it lasted for about a decade in the 1950s and 60s, um, which is an interesting story as well. So Reb Shleim Margolis was a... Um, he lived a very long life. He passed away not long ago, only several years ago. He was close to 100 years old. And he had this Chayadim Shul. Um, he... He he survived the war. He he had before he came to uh, Boston. He was, when he was still in Europe, he survived the war. He was he already was establishing a yeshiva in post-war Lodz and in Prague, and he inspired many survivors and assisted them. And then he um, and then he moves to Boston. And um, so what happens is. Aside from this yeshiva, was aside from the, his shul, he had this yeshiva, this Lakewood yeshiva in Boston, the Rebbe Hyman, and he was involved in the Agudas Yisrael in Boston also, and then he eventually retired, lived out his last years in B'nai Brak. Another interesting rabbi who already came pre-war um, was a fellow by the name of Rafael Landau, who was related to the Strickover Rebbe in Poland. He descended from the Chechenover Rebbe. Um, in, uh, in 1921, he arrives in the United States, he starts off in New Hampshire, of all places, and then a couple of years later, he comes to Boston. So you have this Hasidic uh, Polish rabbi, not a rebbe, but he was 
Um, he was the rabbi of, of Sons of Israel in Brookline, and he he lives on until 1955, until he passes away in Boston. When he passed away, Rav Salvechik uh, eulogized him. So he was a well-known rabbi in the community. In fact, he established the kosher cafeteria at Harvard, which was at the Hill House. He also established the kosher kitchen at the Beth Israel Hospital, which was originally established by the Jewish community of Boston. And he also pushed for the practice of holding kosher banquets at Boston hotels. So he was involved in a lot of the kosherous issues of early Boston. Now, he had been a rabbi before he, when he left Poland, before he came to to the United States, he was a rabbi in Germany. So this Polish rabbi, he made it quite a quite made his quite a, a few rounds uh, before he, uh, you know, as as a as a community rabbi before he made it to Boston. A very interesting individual. Another um, rabbi from from that time uh, was Reb Kalman Lichtenstein, who was born in Bialystok, and he was uh, a rabbi in Ryssen in Poland. And he escaped in the during the war. He escaped to Shanghai. Uh, he made his way to the United States after the war. He was a um, he married his his wife Rebetzin Golda was a niece of Rav Baruch Ber Leibovich, the Kamenitz Rosh Yeshiva, and um, and he they get married in 1948. And he moves to the Boston area, really Chelsea. It's outside of Boston. He became the rabbi in the Walnut Street Shul, where he succeeded Rabbi Victor Miller, who had previously been the rabbi in Chelsea, and when he moved to New York. So, um, so Rabbi Kalman Lichtenstein moves from New York to Chelsea, and he becomes the director of the Chelsea Hebrew Day School. Subsequently, he was also appointed the head of the Chabad local high school. So you have this real Litvak related to Rabbi Baruch Ber, and he becomes the Rosh Hashiva of a Chabad Lubavitch High School. So that's an interesting uh, combination there. Um, he, uh, he was very, very renowned Paisik in an application of practical halacha. His son later became a Dayan in England. Um, so he was another personality in that area. And speaking of Chabad, so you had um, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Zuber, who I mentioned in the Scandinavia uh, the Sweden uh, po- podcast I had quite a while ago, who was uh, he was a sheichet and a rabbi in Stockholm uh, in Sweden during during the war, right before the war, after the war, and he eventually moves to Boston. Uh, also, he was tragically murdered um, in Boston and very sad at a young age in 1953. Um, then we spoke about Rebbe Hyman's yeshiva, and I mentioned in part one there was also an earlier yeshiva. Rav Salvechik had a yeshiva, Heichal Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, which started in the 1930s, uh, named after his grandfather, Rav Chaim Brisker. So this was Rav Salvechik's yeshiva, and it was a small group. It was officially affiliated with Ritz, with the with the yeshiva university for a time period. There was some refugee students from the Mir yeshiva and other yeshivas in Europe who arrived at the beginning of the war, who formed a core of uh, students, which uh, you know, which you know, provided a lot of energy to the yeshiva in the early years. Eventually, Rev Solveitchik's cousin, um, Rev Michal Feinstein, who was also of the Mir Yeshiva, came there, and it became the kibbutz of Boston. His official name was the Heichel or Heichel Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, but people referred to it as the kibbutz. And um, in fact, Rev Nata Greenblatt, who was um, who was one of the, I think he's the only surviving student today of the yeshiva. He described how the had uh, really primitive conditions in the yeshiva. They, despite that, they studied intensely. They 
They used to have, they stayed in this dormitory, which was this abandoned house with broken windows and no heat. And he would prepare water to wash his hands and it would freeze over in the Boston winters. So they had this, uh, they had this room where Rav Salvechik gave uh, delivered the shiurim, and there was and there was this framed picture of Reb Chaim Brisker in the background. That was the, it only lasted a couple of years. Um, Rav, Rav Michal Feinstein gave the the shiurim during the week, and Rav Salvechik on weekends because after Rav Meishe Salvechik had passed away in the beginning of 1941, so his son Rav Salvechik was already had had succeed, eventually succeeded him, and he was in New York for most of the week. Um, so that's that's the that's the story of Hechel Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi uh, as well. So that's that's uh, that's it for today. There's plenty more to say about Boston, but these are just uh, another installment of some great uh, tidbits about this uh, Jewish community over there. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comment sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can. Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.